good to be in God's house this morning and I want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. We read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith very important passage of scripture and I'm not going to go back and do a lot of um, review this morning and tying in and so I hope you kind of remember some of the things that uh, were said from the last message you remember just one thing I will point out you remember that Paul was praying uh, about having the opportunity to go and to visit the Romans because he said he wanted to go and share the gospel with them so I think it's in that context when Paul is saying, I want to come to Rome and I want to be able to preach the gospel to you there in Rome, that he then makes this comment about the gospel. Um, one thing I'll also point out, if, if you have the little marks in your Bible that show you the different paragraphs, sometimes that's interesting to pay attention to uh, in the context. We look at these, these are letters, and sometimes we are just so used to our Bibles, and we look at chapter and verse numbers and all of that kind of stuff, and Sometimes even, I don't even agree sometimes with the way they broke those up, but they did it that way so we could study it. So I could tell you, let's turn to Romans 1, 16 and 17, instead of go in the letter, go down about this far, and, and find this paragraph. It's just so that we can study it. But if you, if you look, um, it's marked, just verse 16 and 17 are a completely different paragraph. So Paul starts writing, and he goes, Paul uh, in Romans chapter 1, Verse 1 all the way through verse 15 is the first paragraph. Then there's this small little paragraph, just verses 16 and 17, and then he starts a new paragraph in verse 18. So these two verses must have something that's really important. I think that just from the context, just from looking at the way he wrote it, there's something really important that Paul's trying to get across. He mentioned the gospel, so now he's going to talk about the gospel for just a minute and it's so important that he changed his paragraph said this is something I want kind of set apart by itself for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith now we could take the first part of this and really unpack it, and I'm not going to do that today, but I do want to mention it. I think it is significant that Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Um, that is, I think, um, even relevant in our day today. Um, there are many who act as though they are ashamed of the gospel. Uh, we, we believe, and I'm going to unpack this in just a minute, but Primitive Baptists, we believe in immediate regeneration, and I think that's right, and it's good. And, and it is the truth. But because we believe in that, we're scared of the gospel a little bit. We're scared of the power of the gospel and what the gospel can accomplish uh, in, in a sinner. So we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel and the power that God has given the gospel 
Um, and it's very important, as you can tell from verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So we're going to unpack that this morning. That's kind of what we're going to look at. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should not be either. So our first point this morning is, what is this salvation and why is it needed? What is this salvation? So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Well, what is he, what is he talking about there? What does that mean when he says it's the power of God unto salvation? Salvation from what? So salvation, and this can kind of be tricky, it's one word in, in the New Testament, and it can have a lot of different meanings. It can mean something as simple as, being saved from something, you know, like um, being saved from a shipwreck, being saved from, you know, falling into a pit. And it can mean all the way to being saved eternally from hell. And it's the same word that's used in all of those contexts. So what then is the context when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Well, the answer in the book of Romans in this context is specifically and, and very, very easily, you know, to be pulled out that we need to be saved from the wrath of God. So you look at Romans 1.18, and we're not going to go into this today. We're going to come back to this later, but just for our context sake. So we just said what Romans 16 and 17 say. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So right here in the context, we get the answer to that question. What is it that this salvation is from? It's from the wrath of God against sin and against unrighteousness that we have by nature. So this is given as the reason why that we need to be saved. God, you know, the... the the persona of God that's put out there by a lot of preachers today is this loving grandfather in the sky. God loves everyone. He, he just wants you to be saved. He is just, he is just devastated that there's going to be people that are going to be in hell, and he wants you. He's done all that he can do. I've heard that so many times. God has done all that he can do. That is such an improper view of who God is. God is not someone who does all he can do, do and then just wait on the results. God doesn't operate in that way ever. He never has and he never will. But that's kind of the persona that's put out there of God, but that's not the God of the Bible. And God is a God of love. That is absolutely true, but he's also a God of wrath. And he's a holy God who will not tolerate unrighteousness. And because of that, we are in, uh, we're in a kind of a tough spot, right? Because we don't have our own righteousness that we can bring to the table. And God is angry at sinners because we're rebels against him and against his law. And he's angry about that. That's the God of the Bible. And so God is, God is not uh, just kind of sitting up there hoping that things work out. But that's our problem is that God is wrathful towards us in our unrighteousness and our untruthfulness. <laughs> Go to Romans 2.5. Uh, Romans 2.5, just over one chapter. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's wrath is a righteous 
judgment. Let me repeat that. God's wrath that I'm saying that we need to be saved from is a righteous judgment. In other words, God has a right. It's a good, it is the right thing that God is angry about unrighteousness because of his holiness. So God's wrath is a righteous judgment. When we are unrighteous, God's righteousness stands out in direct contrast to that, and therefore we receive God's wrath and indignation. This reminds me a little bit of what C.S. Lewis wrote, you know, when he was writing about Aslan, who was a picture of Jesus Christ. He said, you must remember, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. Um, he is, he's a force to be reckoned with. There is, he's not just, like we said, this kindly grandfather in the sky who is hoping that everybody gets saved. So this is what we need saving from in the end, and that's our ultimate problem, is God's final wrath that separates us from himself. And if you ask the book of Romans, what do we need to be saved from? There's going to be a lot of answers that are going to come. We need to be saved from sin. That is true. We need to be saved from um, guilt. Yes, that's true. We need to be saved from the ways that we uh, continue to sin in our life. That is true. From our sin nature. That is true. From destructive habits. That is true. But all of those things are under the umbrella of that we need to be saved from the wrath of God because all of those things just lead us to an, an, an ultimate end of facing the wrath of God for sin. So our ultimate problem, though very few see it today, is that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. You remember that um, very famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards? I actually studied that in high school. It was really difficult because I was at Walnut High School and the teacher was like, can you believe that anybody ever actually believed that God was like this? And I was like, raise my hand. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's still people that understand this truth. Um, but that, but it, it's, it's not a whole lot of people that do understand that today, even, even among Christian churches, that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. An infinite, omnipotent, holy, and righteous, those two are very important, holy and righteous God. The gospel is the good news that God himself has rescued us from the wrath of God. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? So the gospel is the good news that, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for us, and because of that, God has rescued us from his wrath against us. So he's rescued us from himself. That's, that's kind of amazing. So you can see it um, probably the clearest of all in Romans 5, 9. Let's go over there. Romans 5, 9. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we are saved from wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in his blood. So in the end, it's all about escaping the wrath of God or having the wrath of God turned away from us. So, so that's number one. We just want to kind of set the stage. What is salvation? And you'll see why I'm really kind of diving into that a little bit later in the message. Now, that, that's going to come up pretty quick. Because secondly, and we're going to take, I don't like to do this very often, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour from our text because I think it's important for us to kind of set the stage. So the point number two is a prerequisite course. Okay, you know, in, in college when you're going to take Algebra 2, you have to take Algebra 1 first. They say, hey, it's a prerequisite. You've got to get this first, then you can get this. So we're going to do a prerequisite course 
on regeneration and conversion because it's really important for this text and for us to really understand what this text says without diving into error and, and getting into something that, that would be wrong. But I think I also want to be honest with you about the way that other people would kind of interpret this text. So many of the ministers, in fact, probably a majority of Primitive Baptist ministers would tell you that the most important thing that you need to understand when you look at a text that deals with salvation in the scriptures is that you need to divide that into one of two categories. It's either talking about a timely salvation or it's talking about an eternal salvation. And so they say when, whenever you're reading the Bible and you get to a text that's talking about salvation, you need to make a decision and say, is this timely or is this eternal? And, and the difference between eternal salvation and timely salvation is probably the most important thing. So, and they would take most of the verses in the New Testament and classify them as timely salvation verses. So they would say, well, this verse is really not talking about eternal salvation. It's just talking about a salvation here in time. And so the gospel, believe it or not, the gospel itself, the gospel message, all anything that has to do with faith, that we have faith in Christ, all of those things have to do with timely salvation, not eternal salvation. Because eternal salvation has nothing to do with all that. It only has to do with regeneration. So when you're born again, you're saved. What happens after that is really kind of irrelevant. So that faith in Christ, the gospel, conversion, etc., all of those things all have nothing to do with eternal salvation. So they're going to look at a text and they're going to say, okay, this either goes in this category or it goes in this category. Well, as Brother Jeff always says, you know, and he said this a couple of times here, there's a Greek word for that, and it's hogwash. You know, he says that all the time. That's what that is. That's hogwash. That is, that is such a bad way to look at the New Testament scriptures and, and leads to all kind of other problems. I do think there is something, though, that is important for us to understand anytime we do look at one of these verses. One of the really important things that there is to understand as you read the Bible and study about soteriology is the distinction between regeneration and conversion. It's a really difficult subject. Um, the way that I do it in my mind to make it sense for me is that I look at effectual calling as a whole. So there's an effectual call of God that God calls his people and that there's two parts to that. There's regeneration and there's conversion. And, and, that, and it's kind of technical and so people, you know, you lose them in the weeds. So I'm just going to ask you to hang with me for just a minute because it is really, really important. God gives life free of means, so the gospel has no role in that, in giving spiritual life. The gospel has no role in that. When God makes you go from spiritually dead, as we're described in Ephesians 2.1, right? We are dead in trespasses and in sins. When we go from death to life, the gospel doesn't play a role in that. That's the Holy Spirit of God working free of means. He doesn't use the minister. He doesn't use the written word. He doesn't use instruments in that. So when we say immediate regeneration... You know, it's not talking about how fast it happens. It's talking about that it doesn't use means. So it's immediate. It is, it is not with the use of means. So our text this morning, when we say that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that's not talking about the power to bring spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel. That's, not, that's wrong. That would be an incorrect interpretation of this scripture. However... God does use means, and he uses the gospel in conversion. And conversion is necessary and important. That's, that's the part that has really kind of been the doormat 
um, probably for a long time, and I think it's, it's high time that we get that right. The gospel is important, then the power of God in the gospel is important. It's just not for regeneration, it's for conversion. And so the easiest way for me to explain conversion to you is that's faith and repentance. That's when God makes you aware that you're a sinner and you repent of your sins and you follow Christ in faith. That's what conversion is. So if you hear people say, and this is where it gets really confusing, I'll just be honest about it, it gets really confusing. People will say, well, yeah, I was born again and I got baptized. Well, that's true. You know, they got born again before they had faith and repentance. So really they got converted is what they're really talking about, but they call it when I was born again. Um, and, and both of those things are true. It's just they happen a lot of times uh, kind of simultaneously. So saving faith and repentance is a really important thing. So just to give you a, a concept of how difficult this can be, someone that Old Baptists have respected for years, just about every printed Baptist preacher that there is probably has a copy of this commentary. John Gill. You've heard me quote. You've heard Brother Nathan quote him. You've heard Brother Jeff quote him. You've probably heard of John Gill your whole life. He is a friend of our people, and he is, he is a brilliant theologian, and it's very rare for me to ever dispute anything that he says because I think he's a lot smarter than I am but he's wrong on this text he's just dead wrong on this text now he did correct it by the time he was an old man but when he was writing his commentary this is what he wrote about this verse on the section that says it is the power of God and to salvation Gill writes it is the power of God instrumentally as it is a means made use of by God in the quickening of dead sinners enlightening their blind eyes stopping their deaf ears softening hard hearts and making enemies friends to which add the manner in which all of this is done suddenly secretly effectually and by love and not force that is the extent this power is so you see what he's saying there he's saying the gospel itself brings spiritual life he's wrong now that's wrong um, so you got to be careful when you look at commentaries you got to always make sure that, that they're right it's like i said i trust john gill pretty pretty you know pretty much he's, he's usually spot on so just just so i can vindicate him by the way he did correct this so he wrote his commentaries through his whole life and he i'm telling you every verse that he came to he was a gospel regenerationist well then at the end of his life he wrote a systematic theology and in that he got it right he kind of turned the corner and was like wait a minute you know that's not the that's not the right thing so he he did get it right in the end so immediate regeneration let's turn to ephesians 2 four and five and i'm not going to spend just tons of time on this it's something we've preached on here significantly and i think you have an understanding of but it's really important for the, the text that we're going to look at this morning but god who is rich in mercy for his great love where wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with christ by grace ye are saved so we were quickened uh, by God we, it was not the gospel that gave us spiritual life that quickening or making alive is done completely by the Holy Spirit free of means so I'll just sum it up this way there's two basic views <coughs> of how regeneration works there's a synergistic view and a monergistic view we're monergists so we, we say that it's monergistic but the synergistic view I'll start with it I always want to end on the right one because that's the one you'll remember me talking about. But the synergistic view of regeneration says that man and God cooperate in bringing new life to a person. 
The Lord acts upon the heart of the unbeliever, imploring him to change. However, God, through God, though God calls to the heart, regeneration cannot occur unless the believer, who has the ability to say yes or no, embraces the divine call. So you and God work together, and then you have spiritual life. So you're working with God. Now, of course, the difficulty in that, I don't have to point out, is that you are dead. So, you know, it'd be like me saying, okay, um, I, want, I want brother so-and-so to come help me mow my yard. Well, the problem is he's dead. You know, is he going to be a lot of help to me? No, he's not going to be able to help me at all. He's dead. He can't help at all. You can't do anything when you're dead. So being spiritually dead, uh, the verse that we just read, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together in Christ. So synergism is hard with a dead person. Okay, that's a difficult thing to pull off. Well, the proper view is monergism, and on, on this one, this says that God's Spirit is the sole agent in regeneration, monergism, one, one active person. It's the Holy Spirit. God moves sovereignly upon the souls of those whom he has chosen, enabling them to have faith. He takes the spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. We are actually born again or regenerated before we have faith. We are not born again because we trust in Jesus, but we trust Jesus because we're born again. If you don't hear anything else I said this morning, and that's what you get, that would be great if you just took that away from this message this morning, that regeneration precedes faith. In other words, what that simply says is, and this is rare to be heard preached out of pulpits, um, it's gaining traction, which I think is fantastic, um, but what this simply means is that, what, what that phrase just said. We're not born again because we believe in Christ. So a lot of pulpits this morning, this is what their message is. They're saying, look, you need to trust in Christ. You need to use your faith. You need to exercise faith and come to Christ in faith so that God will make you spiritually alive and you will be born again. If you exercise faith, then God will, you will be born again. What we understand the Bible to teach, and I think is very crystal clear in, in the whole Bible, but especially in this book of Romans, is that that's the order's backwards. What happens is God makes us alive, and then we trust in Christ because he gives us the ability to do so. So just a couple of verses here just to reinforce that. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. A lot of those churches I told you that have it backwards, they'll quote that verse all day long. problem is they stop, and they don't go on to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you're born of God. The reason that you're able to respond to the gospel, that you're able to receive him, is because you are born of God. That's, that's John 1, 12 and 13. First uh, John 5, 1 through 5, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, you must be born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. I'm not going to read the rest of that. It just goes on to reinforce that <clears throat> um, over and over and over again. That first verse is the key. Whosoever, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. God. So now let's go back to our text there in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So the big question then um, of our text today is, how is the gospel 
God's power unto salvation. How is that true? What does that statement mean, in other words? There's another way you could say it. What does it mean when God says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? So that's what we're going to try to unpack. So our third point this morning is God's righteousness. God's righteousness, because that's the key in us understanding what this means, is is the phrase where he talks about God's righteousness. (coughs) So the answer to the question is primarily not going to come from verse 16. Verse 16 sets it up. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's where the statement is made. So there's a statement made here that Paul says, I'm telling you the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, now we're wanting to know what that means. How do you say that? How do we unpack that? What does it mean when Paul says this? So to get that answer, you have to go to verse 17 because it plainly is connected. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. For therein, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So part of this answer, we're going to have to understand what he means by the righteousness of God, God's righteousness. That's this point. Now, I love the way, um, I think it was John Piper that he set it up this way when he was going through this verse, and it just made a really good point, so I'm going to have to do the same thing. He said, I'm going to read the verse to you, and I'm going I'm to kind of swap some words out, and let's see if it, if it sounds different. What if the scripture said, for therein is the love of God revealed from faith to faith? <coughs> sounds right, and in some ways that is right. The love of God is revealed in the gospel. But that wasn't what Paul chose to say here. (coughs) He didn't say the love of God is revealed from faith to faith in the gospel. What he did say was the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel is a demonstration and, and revelation of how it is that we become righteous before a holy God. And that's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. So I think what's so helpful about that is what we hear from most people when they talk about the gospel is just the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. Paul is is picking up a topic here that's, that's different from that. He says what's really at stake in the gospel is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. See, Even the love of God could not just sweep the unrighteousness of man and the wrath of God under the rug and pretend all is well. If that's the case, then God is not God and God is not just. So therefore, it cannot be all love. The love of God had to deal with man's unrighteousness and had to deal with God's wrath. And, you know, he can't just say, well, I love you and and I want to take care of you, so therefore I'm just going to pretend like nothing ever happened. If that were true, I love this quote too. (laughs) He said, if that were true, the book of Romans would be really short. <laughs> it would be, you know, it'd be like one paragraph and then that's it. Well, God loves a people and he's going to take care of everything and that's it. Well, no, there's a whole lot more than that to unpack. So the love of God is a love full of wisdom. It's a love full of justice, a love full of truth. It's a love that upholds all the other attributes of God rather than blotting them out. The love of God is worked out wisely, legally, Justly, 
and truthfully. Nothing hidden, nothing suppressed. It takes, it takes our unrighteousness and God's righteousness into account and it deals with them in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's really what we're going to unpack here today. So Paul wants Christians to understand how they will be saved from the wrath of God. And, and he wants us to know more about it. So evidently it matters to God and to Jesus Christ because through the inspired apostle Paul, this is the word of God, we learn how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because that's what verse 17 is all about. And it really is a sad thing that so many people don't, don't worry about that very much in, in today's culture. You know, they really don't want to know the details. So I know that a lot of the things I'm saying today are details, and I, I'm trying to be the best I can at just kind of laying it out there for you. And, and, but it's detailed, and I get it. And you say, well, do we really have to know all of that? Do we really have to know? Well, Paul says, yes, you need to know it. Remember, who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. So these are people that already believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, but it's really important that you understand kind of all the underpinnings of that. The Romans may not have understood all of that yet. They just may have believed in Christ and said, I believe Christ is the Son of God and he died for my sins, but I don't know all this other stuff. Paul says it's important. I'm going to write this whole letter. I'm going to unpack this for you because it is really, really important. The role of how the Holy Spirit works to regenerate us and convert us and the role of the gospel in that faith and repentance and conversion and how God goes on working to keep us and to purify us and to sanctify us, all of those things are really important. And so Paul's going to really dive into that. So the question again that we're looking at, how is the gospel, the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth? So because for therein, he says for therein, or because for therein, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the real puzzle becomes, how is that good news? If you say the gospel is the message of the righteousness of God, how is that good news? Because are we righteous or unrighteous? I think it's pretty easy to see. We're unrighteous. So how would the righteousness of God be the good news of the gospel or the glad tidings? Gospel just means glad tidings or good news. The fact that God is righteous and I'm unrighteous is actually the problem, I thought, right? We said that from the beginning. The problem is, is that I'm unrighteous and God is righteous and therefore the wrath of God abides on me. So I'm going to read something to you from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that he hated Romans 1.17. Can you imagine him saying that? He said, I hated that verse. I hated it. I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But a single verse in, in a single word in chapter one, verse seventeen, in it is the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. For I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. So now we're gonna come back to him later on. He's gonna get this right. But he says right now, he said, I hated that one word in this text because I couldn't make sense of it. Why, how could that be that that is in any way good news, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Well, here's the answer to the question. God demands righteousness that we don't have. So the only hope for us is that God himself would give us the righteousness that he demands. 
Now that would be good news, right? So if you need righteousness and you don't have it and you can't produce it and there's nothing you can do to get it, then you need an alien righteousness. And so the good news of the gospel is is that the righteousness that we have has nothing to do with our righteousness. It's the righteousness of God himself. He gives us his righteousness and our sin is then imputed to his son. So what is revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of God for us that he demands from us. The reason the gospel is the power of God unto salvation is that in it God reveals a righteousness for us that God demands from us. What we had to have and could not create or supply or perform, God gives us freely, namely his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. Again, you see in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is our hope to escape this wrath? Is that we must have righteousness. God must intervene and supply us with a righteousness that is not our own. You heard me say this term a minute ago, alien righteousness. That sounds weird. Sounds like flying saucers and all that kind of stuff. That's what we think of when we think of aliens. Or nowadays... It's somebody who crossed the border, right, (laughs) illegally, an illegal alien. That's how we use that term all the time now. All that means is it's an outside of ourself. So the righteousness that we need could not come from us. It must come from outside of us. It's an alien righteousness. It It must come from an outside source. That he would give to us the righteousness he demands from us. If God would do that, then certainly that would be good news. That is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth because God gives us what he demands from us namely his own righteousness so how are we justified when we have no righteousness of our own our faith in Christ through the gospel uh, imparts to us the good news that God has imputed to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he's placed your sin on his son Jesus Christ and Jesus nailed your sin to the cross and it's cast away as far as the east is from the west, that is the gospel, and that is good news. Um, if, if, if you, like I said earlier, if you go away today with nothing else that I've said, and you don't want to get in the intricacies of this and dive into the deep parts of what it means and all of that kind of stuff, the simple news is, is that the gospel is the good news that you have a righteousness that's not your own, that God provided righteousness for you through Jesus Christ, and therefore the wrath of God has been turned away from you because it was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, in your stead. That's substitutionary atonement. So God credits his righteousness to man. Now, in our text also, it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And then there's this phrase at the end, As it is written, The just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, for, for, in, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4, this Old Testament quote, as it is written, <clears throat> but the righteous man shall live by faith. So you say, well, so what is the connection there? Well, the righteous man that's talked about in Habakkuk, the reason he's righteous is because of the same righteousness that's mentioned in the first part of the verse. He's righteous because it's the same righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. The righteous man is righteous because he's been imputed with the righteousness of God. So he's tying those two things together. And he says that that man shall live by faith. So we are connected 
to that righteousness through faith. That's a really important, that's really important. Um, so if you say that nothing else matters after regeneration, that's dangerous because faith is important. Do you think it's important that you need righteousness from God? I do. I think that's a really important thing because I don't want to face God with my own righteousness. I don't know about you. may feel more confident than I do. You know, it's a false thing, but have you ever heard anybody talk about like, well, I just believe that, you know, if you do enough good in your life and it outweighs the bad, that, that God's going to be okay with that and you're just, you know, he's going to be good and he's going to let you into heaven. But, what, you know, it's going to balance the scales. Here's the bad part. That's false, right? I mean, one sin tips the scale and you can't ever, you know, you can't, that's the truth. But let's just say that was true for a minute. How do you feel? How do you feel? You feel pretty good about it? I don't know. I'll tell you, I don't at all. Especially if you really understand what sin is, an idle thought. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, you've never lusted after a woman? What did Jesus say about adultery? You might get high and mighty and say, well, I've, I've never committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife for my whole marriage. I, really? Not, not according to Jesus' standard, you haven't. So I don't know about you, but I wouldn't feel very good. Even if it was the whole balance thing, I would still feel pretty poorly about that. So I need a righteousness that's not my own. And we have that through faith so that's point number four we're going to move on point number four is god's righteousness is manifested through faith god's righteousness is manifested through faith it's the doctrine of justification by faith paul's answer to our question involves justification so kind of what we're talking about all morning is the righteousness versus unrighteousness thing is really justification justification is the legal aspect of our salvation. When we go into the court of God, there's a judgment made as to whether we're righteous or unrighteous. And if we're righteous, then we have fellowship with God and we get to go to heaven. If we're unrighteous, then we'll be separated out, separated from the presence of God to eternal destruction, whatever that means. I can't even tell you what all that means. That's, that's a horrible thing to even think about. But you're, you're separated out into eternal destruction. So Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So you see, we can't work this out on our own. We can't, we can't, um, we can't be justified by works of the law, by obeying the law or doing the right thing. No man's going to be justified in that way. Number one, even if you lived a perfect and sinless life, what's the other problem? You have a sin nature that you inherited. You were born a sinner, even before you had uh, a chance to do good or evil. So in Romans 3.21, this language is so close. Let's turn over there in uh, Romans 3, verse 21, because the language is very similar to what we see in Romans 1.17. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed, by the law and the prophets. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. So very similar language to what we saw in verse 17 where it says it's revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he explains that justification from verse 20 is, is um, manifested, it's made, brought to light uh, and shed light on it through the revealing of the righteousness of of God, the same as in one seventeen, he says that this righteousness is now manifested is even the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who, who believe. For there is no distinction, for we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So the flow of Paul's thought is that we're being justified as a gift of God's grace through faith. So that we have God's act of justifying sinners in verse 20, and again in verse 24, and then kind of in the middle of that, you have um, God's manifesting his righteousness through faith. So there's kind of a little sandwich there of justification, and then in the midst of that, our righteousness through faith. So Paul is basically saying this. In the death of Jesus, in the death of Jesus Christ, God has manifested his own righteousness by imputing <coughs> or crediting that righteousness to sinners and pronouncing them righteous or just with his own righteousness. That is justification. That's the act of declaring sinners righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. So through faith, we have connection to Christ, and therefore this, this double imputation takes place, that his righteousness is placed on us and our sin is placed on him. Now I do want to be clear about this. What's the meritorious cause of our justification? So what, what caused our justification? Well, that's the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, that's the cause of our justification. That is, that is where um, the price was paid so that we could be declared justified. But it is through faith that we're connected to that and to God. So if you've been born again and made spiritually alive by the Spirit of God, then you have the ability to come to Christ in faith and repentance. And what Paul is saying here is that the good news of the gospel is that you believe by faith that has been given to you by God and that God therefore has imputed the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, to you. There's no better news that I could give you today. There's no better news that you're ever going to hear any time in your life. You know, you might say, well, you know, I go to the doctor and he says, look, we found cancer in your lungs and you've got two weeks to live. And then they call you back 30 minutes later and say, you know what? We had the scans mixed up. That wasn't your scan. You don't have cancer at all. You're good to go. That'd be pretty good news, right? That, that pales in comparison to the news that even though you're unrighteousness, God has provided a righteousness for you. That's the good news of the gospel, that you are removed from under the wrath of God because of this righteousness that was given to you. So let's go back to old Martin Luther. Remember, it's the man who said he hated Romans 117. He, he was a young person who was studying the scriptures. And in the, the kind of the, the story of this that was actually conferred by his son in the writing, he said he would sit for hours and hours and meditate and meditate on that one verse because he hated the verse and he wanted understanding. He would pray and he would pray and he would sit and study and stare at it. So then this is the rest of that story. <coughs> According to Martin Luther, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the word, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith uh, is righteous shall live. There I began to understand the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. 
Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So all of a sudden, God gave him an understanding and said, you're looking at this the wrong way. You're looking at the righteousness of God as judgment when really the righteousness of God is your deliverance. It's your deliverance. The fact that Jesus Christ is righteous is the only hope that we have. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the righteousness of God. So he, he went from hating that verse to saying it was the most influential verse that he ever read. Can you imagine that? Martin Luther, the, great, the guy who you know, had such a big impact uh, on the church and, and on history, really, in Europe, that that was his testimony, that that verse is where he, he kind of began to understand justification by faith and, and how all of that works. Now, if this has been really confusing to you today and there's been a lot of questions that you've had, here's the good news. I told you this is one little paragraph that Paul put in the first chapter of Romans. He's going to start unpacking this for about 12 chapters, okay? So this is not the last time we're going to talk about this. We're going to come back to it. He's going to come back to it over and over again, and he's really going to kind of lay open um, these, these topics. This is just a, a very brief introduction to the topic. So if you feel confused or you got questions about it, hopefully just hang on. We're going to keep moving through Romans, and we'll get there. But the important thing of the message today, go back to our text again. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So I hope that from faith to faith that you've heard the message this morning that God's righteousness has been provided for you in a righteousness that you, if you're one of God's children, you have a righteousness which is not your own. But I would encourage you to this. If you're someone who believes in God and you believe the Bible and you say, well, I do believe that that's true, but you never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then Paul would say he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you should not be ashamed of the gospel either. If you believe that the truth that we heard this morning about Romans 1.17, that God has imputed his righteousness to us through faith, then I call you to be obedient to the gospel and to express that faith publicly before men and follow Christ. Repent of your sins and follow Christ in faith.